So, Josh, we enter dangerous waters. Mm, how so? Well, we're getting closer and closer to the present day with these episodes of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. And so, I'm not entirely sure the pieces we're going to be looking at now can be qualified as masterpieces simply given their youth. Really, it's a good thing we haven't been reviewing any of my pieces, because that would be embarrassing. Mm. Sorry, are you tucking your collar? Uh, just trying to temper my humours. Uh, but, but yes, no, I have been thinking that we can't really call these newer pieces masterpieces. They're more like hot takes. And this week really is a hot take. Not a fan? Uh, we'll get into that, but... I guess we're going to have to retire the sting. What? Never? No, I, I refuse to countenance it. He's just an alien in New York, planning the ultimate heist. I, I meant retire the theme music, not sting the musician. The actor, the legend. Or get rid of that Paul Newman film. Yeah, no, it's no Ocean's Eleven. Might be an Ocean's Twelve, though. Anyway, I might have to come up with a new sting. Or... Or... You'll see... The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentis. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand, and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy and all-consuming amorphous mass. It's Dr. M. Rx Dentis. Hello there! Uh... We've kind of given the way the game away a bit with the with the intro, I suppose. It's a, it is indeed a conspiracy theory masterpiece episode, or is it? Or is it? Or is it? Is it? Mm. Is it? Sort of. I don't know. That is, you know, it's an interesting issue. Like, because the series started as as you know, looking at the at the foundational papers, the the, the very first writings people did in the modern era. But now we're just, we've, we've, we've kind of got through all that, and uh, yeah, you know, we're looking at I just mean, stuff as it comes. What we've seen is that there was a flurry of work, basically, between 1995 and then 2003, and then not a flurry of work between, say, 2003 all the way up to about 2014. And now we're going to get a flurry of new work. And so we've gone from... We're looking at classic papers in the genre, the foundational texts, and now due to this kind of absence of work that goes on for about 10 years, we're suddenly really hitting up against the modern day. So we're looking at a paper now from 2018, and 2018 is... It's just before it's the not pandemic. That long ago. Gosh. No, just no. before the pandemic. But just after the Trump election, though. So I, I'm assuming that's what kicked off the 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 that particular wave of it being the leader. I think so. I mean, obviously, within the social science literature, that does seem to have been one of the big motivating factors which brought people into writing and opining on conspiracy theory theory is the realization that suddenly tin pot dictators are no longer just an Eastern European fascination. No, Viktor Orban's can be found in America with Donald Trump, and then, after the British laughed at Donald Trump for long enough, could be found in the UK with your Boris Johnsons, your mm. Liz Trushes, and, I mean, 
At the time of recording, Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But for how long? Who knows? We do Literally not know. no way of knowing. No. No, in fact, I mean, there could be a coup going on right now. Mm, right fa- now. In fact, I'm just going to assume there is. Right, well, I mean, we're already talking about the paper, so maybe we should just play that sting and uh, get into it for real. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. Yes, so now this is an interesting one. This is, we, we, we're a week late recording. M, oh, I should have said up the front. Due to my endless meeting, my M- endless meeting. So last Thursday, I had a staff meeting, which I was told would only be two hours long. And at the third hour, I was sending messages to Josh going, I might be late. And then at the three and a half hour mark, I was going, there's no way I'm going to get back in time. The meeting did end after three and three quarter hours. But I was promised a two hour meeting and it was almost double that. Mm. So, yes, we weren't able to schedule a recording time last week. So this one's so I've, I've had like two weeks of, of, of anticipation to get into this one, because I, I mean, I guess I guess right up the front, uh, let's let's say uh, the basic the basic details. The paper is called What's Epistemically Wrong with Conspiracy Theorizing. It is written by Keith Harris. It is published in the Royal Institute of Philosophy in 2018. But one of the interesting things about this is that this is the f- uh, is it the first paper? It, it's it's the first paper I can think of that explicitly argues against you. That, that, that actually, you know, if we've we've seen you referred to in the past, and maybe lumped in with a bunch of other pe- philosophers who study conspiracy theories when those things are being argued against. But I, I think this is the first time anyone has specifically said, "Here is this MDentist person, and I disagree with what they're saying for the following reasons." Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you don't agree with with uh, this paper so much, given that I don't recall you completely revising your position in 2018, as you may have in response to this, if you if you found it had completely undermined everything you'd ever written and caused you to reevaluate your life entirely. Let's just say that we're going to be looking at other papers by Keith Harris in this series, and I don't agree with any of them. Right, okay, well, I guess this will give you all a taste of things to come then. Right, you know, let me revise that. I think, I think there's something really interesting about his most recent paper, but he has to get there by engaging in some goalpost shifting. But we'll get to that paper, I must say soon enough, but actually because we've got a flurry of work from 10, 2018 onwards, you probably actually won't get to his next paper or at least the paper I'm talking about, for another year and a bit. But there's, there's something really interesting in his most recently published paper, but he has to do a bit of a goalpost shift to get there, and I just think it's a little bit suspicious, but we'll get there. We'll get there. No, so let's, let's begin at the beginning. First paper by Keith Harris. Begin and... at the beginning? Yes. How? How? Avant-garde? How... I'll take how... it. Yes. How trite and trivial, but oh. at the same time, logical. Mm. Well, I'm just going to read the abstract, uh, just just for that. The abstract of this paper says, Belief in conspiracy theories is often taken to be a paradigm of epistemic irrationality. Yet, as I argue in the first half of this paper, standard criticisms of conspiracy theorizing fail to demonstrate that the practice is invariably irrational. 
Perhaps for this reason, many scholars have taken a relatively charitable attitude toward conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theorising in recent years. Still, it would be a mistake to conclude from the defence of conspiracy theorising offered here that belief in conspiracy theories is on an epistemic par with belief in other theories. I argue that a range of epistemic errors are pervasive among conspiracy theorists. First, the refusal of conspiracy theorists to accept the official account of some target event often seems to be due to the exercise of a probabilistic and fallacious extension of modus tollens. Additionally, conspiracy theorists tend to be inconsistent in their intellectual attention insofar as the effort they expend on uncovering the truth excludes attention to their own capacities for biased or otherwise erroneous reasoning. Finally, the scepticism with which conspiracy theorists tend to view common sources of information, leaves little room for conspiracy theorists to attain positive warrant for their preferred explanations of target events. Modus tollens, eh? That's, that's a phrase I've not heard in a long time. That's, that's stage one, stage one logic, reason and argumentation right there. So Josh, in the same way we've had a debate, are you an East Coast or a West Coast rapper? Are you a modus tollens or a modus ponens kind of guy? I, I prefer my ponens, I have to say. I like, I, like, I like keeping things positive, you know. None of this, none of, none of the negativity that your tollenses tend to introduce. Yeah, I'm with you there. Mm, I'm, yep. when, when I'm down with the kids, I'm down with the modus ponens. Exactly, as well you should be. But, uh, well, actually, I suppose it remains to be seen with a... With a Mr. Harris, Professor Harris, Dr. Harris, I don't know. Dr. Harris. Dr. Dr. Harris. Harris. Whether Dr. Harris is down with the modus ponens, but he's very definitely against the probabilistic modus tollens. And if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, you will in a little while. But first, of course, it's time for the first section, which in, in uh, again, in the slightly unimaginative uh, mode is, is just an introduction. I'd, I'd now, obviously, like... this is not your fault that it's called It's not my fault that it's called the introduction. Yeah. But, it, um... In the paper itself, the introduction is called the introduction, which, admittedly, I've called It makes a certain sense. I'll give you that. Past, so. I mean, I've been tempted, you know, sometimes called the introduction the conclusion, but that kind of avant-garde restructuring of, of the way articles work, I don't think the world is ready for it yet. No, no, probably not. I think you're right. So, I mean, the introduction... Um, uh, basically goes over what was uh, expands upon what we just heard in the abstract. Um, it begins, conspiracy theorizing is often regarded as a paradigm of epistemically irrational behavior, yet it is strikingly difficult to identify the epistemic errors of any characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. And basically says that points out a lot of things that we've seen before, and this will be referring to a bunch of papers we've seen um, in the past. He says that many of the supposed faults with conspiracy theories, they're not really faults at all, or if they are, they're not things that are specific to conspiracy theories, and that's what the first half of the paper is basically about. He says now, possibly because of this, uh, quote, many scholars have taken a relatively charitable attitude toward the practice in recent years, which... I don't know, many philosophers, perhaps, the, 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 the philosophical attitude that we've seen seems to be fairly charitable, but is it, is it, was that true of wider scholarship? I mean, it's certainly not true of the general scholarship around conspiracy theory theory. It probably is true of the general scholarship all around conspiracy theory theory in philosophy. In philosophy. Although, mm. you could take issue with the charitable attitude. So there's one thing to say that many philosophers engaging in conspiracy theory theory don't take a dismissive attitude towards conspiracy theories. So we don't accept that the labeling of a theory as being a conspiracy theory marks it out as being a mad, bad, or dangerous theory. 
But that's not the same thing as saying we're being charitable towards conspiracy theories. Particularists still have issue with particular conspiracy theories. We just don't think that you can smear all conspiracy theories with the derogative or pejorative label. So charitable here might be too charitable a characterization. Just because particularists reject the sui generis rejection of conspiracy theories doesn't mean that we then have a automatically charitable attitude towards conspiracy theories. In fact, one of the things which is interesting about talking with particularist philosophers is that most particularists don't seem to believe that many conspiracy theories. What we do is we go, well, if we hear a conspiracy theory, we don't just automatically dismiss it as being unlikely. We go, well, there needs to be some investigation. It may well turn out on investigation the theory is bad, but we're not going to assume it's bad just because it's called a conspiracy theory. Mm. But nevertheless, the, I, I think the reason why that sort of thing comes up is because the next thing is is that he says there are still things wrong. So so there are a bunch of things that people have said are wrong with conspiracy theories. Those don't really apply, as we'll see. This has possibly caused people to be charitable towards them or not. But there are still some things wrong with conspiracy theorizing, and so that, according to the introduction, is what the second half of the paper will be about. Um, so that leads us straight into section one, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing. And of course, you've got to start with the definition. Now, this definition... Bit different. Well, actually, it's, it's, I was going to say a bit different to the definitions we've seen before. It's not, but it's a bit different to the definition we're most used to anyway. Uh, Dr. Harris says, as I will use this term, a conspiracy theory, one, posits an explanation for a target event or set of target events that is the alternative to the official account of the events. Two, claims that the events was or were brought about by one or more conspirators. Three, posits that the architects of the event are involved in promoting the official account. And four, has greater explanatory power than the official account. Now, I'm just going to interject here and go, sorry, one or more conspirators? What? So does this definition say that you can have a conspiracy theory where the conspiracy involves only one person? Because that's not a conspiracy. As it's normally, yeah, I mean, that I think, I could be wrong, I think that's the only time where he puts it one or more conspirators. I think all the rest of the way through the paper it's it's assumed conspirators, plural. And we haven't discussed the whole, the whole um, uh, group uh, criteria in the past, whether or not it really does need to be more than one person, but um, I, I, we, we can probably forgive him that one given that I don't think it comes up again. But yes, it does stick out, given that the the need for multiple conspirators tends to be one of the um, foundational, one of the one of the, the, the most basic criteria for a conspiracy theory. Yeah, but, because um, conspiracy is group secrecy. It's not individual mm. secrecy. It's people breathing together and thus plotting together to bring about some desired end. That said, though, that, that, that number one, Right, right. Very first criteria is that he he has a conspiracy theory as being an alternative to the official account of events. And we've seen people who put this condition in um, in previous papers. Yep. Uh, David Cody. David Cody does. Yep. Curtis H- Hagen runs a version of this as well. They they're both philosophers and both particularists who go, well, look, a conspiracy theory is kind of by definition in opposition to an official theory of an event. But they also both go, the official theory of the event isn't necessarily true. It's just the official theory of the event. Hmm. 
Now, at this point, he refers to one uh, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith and talking about your the philosophy of conspiracy theories and, and, and basically argues, argues against the definition that you give in there, the definition that we all know and love, the definition which is much more general than his one and, and in particular does not include the uh, condition that a conspiracy theory has to be alternate, an alternative to the official account. Now, he says... He says that you are seemingly concerned that the, the condition that conspiracy theories always run counter to official theories stacks the deck against the rationality of belief in conspiracy theories. And, you, and, and says that you would ex uh, the proper definition of a conspiracy theory would extend to all theories that explain events for reference by reference to conspiracies. Now, he says he finds your case for the broadening of the definition unconvincing. He doesn't, doesn't really state your case apart from... He, he, he says that all you show is that the officialness of a given theory doesn't necessarily indicate that it's well supported by evidence. But that's really as far as he goes there. And he does have a problem, as we've seen other people have a problem, with the fact that giving this broader definition of conspiracy is, in his words, a departure from the common usage of the term. So he says, you know, for instance, on your proposal, the claim that Al-Qaeda conspired to bring down the World Trade Center buildings would be considered a conspiracy theory. And he counts that as a, a point against it. He says that, you know, that the implication is, well, that, that means there's obviously something wrong with the definition. And what strikes me about this is... So this is in reference to my 2014, the philosophy of conspiracy theories. And in my 2014, I do state that I that I am aware that my usage of conspiracy theory departs from common usage. But I also state the reason why I'm using this definition is it's a more theoretically fruitful definition if we actually want to get to grips with what is wrong or right with conspiracy theorizing. So I recognize when I talk about conspiracy theories in this general sense, it doesn't match common usage. And so I accept that, yes, this is a departure from common usage. But I also point out in my 2014, one of the benefits of departing from common usage is that the common usage of conspiracy theory is inconsistent. Because an official theory which mentions a conspiracy will be a conspiracy theory in one society and an official theory in another society, or will be a conspiracy theory at one time and then an official theory at another time. And that just means you end up having this really messy conversation about what counts as a conspiracy theory at time t or place x. It's much better to go, look, We'll deviate from common usage, and we'll stipulate what we mean by conspiracy theory for the process of our analyses, and then we can do the important epistemic work of going, well, look, is belief in these things called conspiracy theories rational or irrational, and under what conditions? Mm. Now, what I found really interesting was that he he admits that as well. It's, it, is, it is interesting to see you both identify problems with your respective definitions and are both willing to sort of to, to, to bite your own bullets while refusing to countenance the others because like he, he he points out that his definition first of all he says it excludes things like flat earth theory because which I, it seemed to be a bit of a misunderstanding of why things are conspiracy theories in some cases that yes as he says the claim that the earth is flat, is not centred on an explanation of events, but I think, yes, 
technically flat earth theory itself is not a conspiracy theory, but it tends to come with conspiracy theories because why don't we all believe that? Oh, because the government's yeah. covering up the truth of it yeah. or something. But anyway, yeah, so there's a, it's what Charles Pick what Charles Picton calls an auxiliary hypothesis conspiracy theory. And I don't think he's ever put this down in print. This comes from conversation with Charles. The notion that there are certain things like the flat earth theory, which comes with an auxiliary hypothesis, which is the attached conspiracy theory, which is, look, the flat earth theory itself is just a statement, the earth is flat. But the conspiracy theory implication is the reason why you don't know the earth is flat is that someone is keeping the flatness of the earth from you with a disinformation or cover-up campaign. They're lying to you, Josh. When they tell you the earth is an oblate spheroid, they're trying to pull the wall over your eyes, you stupid little sheeple, or something of that extent. Mm. Yeah, but now actually, yeah, so this, this is the bit that I found particularly interesting, because he goes on to say exactly what you just said, that... The officially accepted explanation can vary over time and can vary from place to place, and he seems fine with that. So, and yet he appears to be not at all fine with the idea that the definition might go against the common use of the the the, the more common definition. Although he then, of course, he he then says that he gives the flat earth theory as an example of something that is often called conspiracy theories, and says that his definition doesn't follow that. So in that case. He is happy to go against common usage of the term conspiracy theory, but then not in others. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't see that he puts his case for that, um, that 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 criteria number one forward particularly convincingly at all. And I would say, and in fact, I do say in a piece which is coming to print either later this month or early next month. It's a piece called Some Conspiracy Theories. It's the final article in the special issue of Social Epistemology I'm the editor of on conspiracy theory theory. And in that piece, I argue that one of the issues with Harris's work here is he doesn't really explain what particularists say. So there's the occasional hand-wavy mention towards particularist theories, but there's no actual diving into what it is we claim, why we claim it, and then rebutting that claim one by one. It's more along as well, these definitions are implausibly broad or overly broad or go against common usage, and that's taken as being a reason for dismissing those claims as opposed to going, well, why are the particulars working with these, in his words, implausibly broad definitions, and explaining why this mismatch is in fact important. Mm. So he goes, there are a couple more, a couple more points related to his definition. He says, um, additionally, one, that being the criteria that they're an alternative to official, the official account, makes it likely that the processes whereby one comes to believe a conspiracy theory will differ from the processes whereby one comes to believe the official accounts of some event. One will generally not believe a conspiracy theory, for instance, based on official testimony. This is crucial for present purposes as our ultimate focus will be on evaluating the intellectual traits and reasoning processes that lead individuals to believe conspiracy theories rather than evaluating the theories themselves. Foreshadowing. Mm. Um, and then he also talks about uh, conditions three and four. One, that the, the the architects behind the events are involved in promoting the official account and the condition that the conspiracy theory has greater explanatory power by saying, 
It's worth explaining why these two, three, and four are included in the definition above. From the perspective of the conspiracy theorist, it is natural to expect that the true conspirators behind the event to be explained will have a strong incentive to disguise their involvement. One means of doing this is to disseminate or at least allow the dissemination of a false explanation of that event, this being the official account. Hence, part of the explanatory power of a conspiracy theory consists in its ability to explain the prominence of the official account. Official accounts, in contrast, tend not to explain attendant conspiracy theories. Moreover, as we'll see, much of the supposed justification for accepting conspiracy theories is derived from the seeming ability of such theories to explain data left mysterious by the official account. Errant data, one might say, which is something mm, that we've... That sounds a little bit like... A bit of the old Brian Alkeely and also a little bit of the old Buting and Taylor for yes. data. So this brings us to section two, the evaluation of conspiracy theorizing. So we spent a bit of time on section one, given that it was th th there were interesting things to be said about the definition. The next couple of sections we can probably rattle through fairly quickly because it's a, a, another case of a person going over the material that's um, gone before, material that we've already covered in previous episodes. So he begins section two by saying, I wish to emphasize here that the aim of the definition provided above is not to pick out a class of theories that, by their nature, one cannot rationally believe. As others have noted, in particular Brian, uh, some previous work on conspiracy theories has attempted to find a blanket argument that, analogously to David Hume's attack on the rationality of belief in miracles, shows belief in conspiracy theories to be invariably irrational, for reasons I discussed below. I believe that any such intent is doomed to failure. He does seem to be suggesting that Brian is characterizing all conspiracy theories as unwarranted, as opposed to what Brian's actually doing. Between, look, there's a particular kind of conspiracy theory, the mature conspiracy theory, and those theories are suspicious such that we probably will think they're unwarranted due to the lack of evidence advanced in support of them over time. Which... Uh, I, I, I was going to give the game away a little bit and talk about where we end up later on, but I won't. We'll get there in, a, in its own time. Because next he brings up Bunting and Taylor and generalism versus particularism, giving a, a bit of a giving a quick overview of the two terms. He says neither view aligns well with the position taken here, nor I suspect with the best existing critiques of conspiracy theorizing. A generalist view, according to which conspiracy theorizing is invariably rational, is plainly unfounded. So he's 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 no generalist. Well, However, except that well, he kind of yeah. is. So he's going, look, the existing attempts by generalists to show that generalism is true fail. And thus he goes, so it turns out generalism versus particularism, there must be some kind of middle ground. But he's going to conclude that actually, generally, whatever conspiracy theorists say is irrational. So he's putting forward a generalist who he just doesn't want to admit to being a generalist. Well, yes, because so having said that he thinks the generalist view is plainly unfounded, he then goes on shortly afterwards to say, yet the alternative position, according to which whether conspiracy theorizing is irrational must strictly be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis, fails to recognize the extent to which conspiracy theorizing may involve problematic reasoning patterns. If there are problematic traits or reasoning strategies characteristic of conspiracy theorizing, then there may be prima facie grounds for skepticism about the epistemic merits of conspiracy theorizing, even if if certain instances of conspiracy theorizing are epistemically unimpeachable. There is good reason to think that there are traits or reasoning strategies characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. Belief in a given conspiracy theory strongly predicts belief in other conspiracy theories, even in cases where the conspiracy theories are incompatible. And here he refers to the Ted Goetzel paper and the um, Douglas and Wood paper 
that that dead and alive beliefs and contradictory conspiracy theories. Those ones that uh, who was it? Steve Clark took to task yeah. not too long ago. Yeah, and both the Goetzel case, which is the monological belief systems hypothesis that basically belief in conspiracy theories is in some sense epistemically insulated, and that conspiracy theorists only believe other conspiracy theories. That is a view that even in the social sciences seems to be on the wane now. So we're not, a, we're not up to the point where we're looking at those papers, but there are some recent papers, including some recent papers by political scientists and social psychologists going, yeah, the Goethe stuff doesn't actually work. It doesn't really make sense of the phenomena that we're looking at. And there's been substantial critique of the Dead and Alive paper by going, well, look, they're just wooden Douglas are getting it wrong there. It's not that people are believing mutually contradictory theories. They're going, look, because I reject the official theory of the event, that suddenly puts a range of options on the table of which there are degrees of belief or credences I assign. So it's the example I think Lee Basham makes in a paper. If you've lost your keys and you know they're not where they're usually located, then you might entertain two hypotheses for either I left them in the front door when I came into the house, or I left them beside the fridge. Now, those are contradictory if it is the case you left them in the front door, or you left them beside the fridge. But if your theory is simply, well, they're not in the usual place I left them, so there are two options left there, you're not believing two mutually incompatible or contradictory theses. You're going, look, I know they're not in place X, so they're either in place Y or Z, and now I'm going to investigate, is it Y or is it Z? It could be either. Let's find out. Mm. But that, um, so these were, these things, these papers were referred to in the context of, of um, things that are characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. And so this seems to be the thing he says he's going to, he wants to consider whether there are negative epistemic traits and processes characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. And this, I think, characteristic is something that's going to come up a bit. But straight away, we move on to section three, conspiracy theorizing and epistemic vice. So again, this is stuff we've looked at before, in particular, the, the Kassim Kassam stuff. So so he, he entertains, so, and again, remember, we're still in the section of the paper where he's basically saying why the arguments against conspiracy theories or sort of why the arguments for a generalist rejection of conspiracy theories don't apply. So he says one possibility is that conspiracy theorizing is a manifestation of epistemic vice and gives a quick overview of virtue epistemology and epistemic vice. But then says it seems prima facie plausible that conspiracy theorizing typically involves the manifestation of epistemic vice understood thusly. Hence, uh, thusly referring to his previous discussion of it, hence it is worth considering in greater detail whether conspiracy theorists exhibit intellectual vices in such a way as to be worthy of epistemic criticism that does not apply equally to their counterparts. To some extent, any answer to this question must await empirical study, and so the answer given here will be speculative. Nonetheless, strong considerations militate against the idea that conspiracy theorists exhibit familiar epistemically vicious character traits to a greater degree than their counterparts. And refers to Steve Clark talking about the stuff that we've seen before, where, where he mentions, you know, how some conspiracy theorists will put an enormous amount of effort into uncovering the the the, the quote unquote truth, and indeed maybe a lot more knowledgeable about the events that they're interested in than people who believe who don't believe the conspiracy theories around it. So um, there are they're definitely some of the epistemic vices that people will claim conspiracy theorists um, exhibit 
don't actually apply, but then he's interested, well, may, do, they, do they exhibit different epistemic vices, though? And that's what he's going to be getting at later on in the paper. Yeah, I once made the mistake of having an argument with someone who was very strongly of the opinion that JFK was assassinated by the American government. And so we were chatting over drinks about the reasons why I think that actually the best explanation is that Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for the death of President Kennedy. And we went through the usual arguments about, you know, the grassy knoll, the book depository, the the gunshots, the video evidence. And then he started talking about deathbed confessions of people I'd never heard of. Going, well, how do you explain, you know, X on his deathbed said that, you know, he was involved in the conspiracy to kill the president. And I was going, I've I've never even heard of this person. Going, oh, and you say that you, you, you've got good reason to think that Kennedy wasn't killed. You don't even know any of the basic facts. And he knew a lot more about the assassination of JFK. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that additional information meant that I was wrong, although conversely, not knowing that information means I, I also can't say that I can conclusively show this person was wrong in saying this evidence mitigates against my thesis. But he did know a lot more and done a lot more research into the ancillary details of the death of President Kennedy. So, yeah, no, he's quite right here that as is Steve Clark, many conspiracy theorists know an awful lot about the topics that they talk about to the point that actually engaging in debates with people can be quite difficult. So this brings us then to section four, conspiracy theories and the evidence, uh, which begins, a striking feature of beliefs and conspiracy theories is that such beliefs are difficult to shake. Indeed, such beliefs are arguably too difficult to shake. A criticism of conspiracy theorizing can be developed on this basis along the following lines, and then goes on to talk about it. It's the, the, the falsifiability stuff. He says that people can um, criticize conspiracy theories for being unfalsifiable, and then refers to Brian's response to this claim, which we've seen before. So he develops this by giving the example of a, a person called Sam, who thinks that the mayor of his the town where he lives, and his associates carried out an assassination, and then as other people produce evidence against this, he just comes to believe that they're all in on it as well. So you know, the, the idea, Sam thinks the mayor is responsible for an assassination, the police say, no, he's not, he thinks, oh, well, then the police must be on it. And then the the, the press, do, the investigative reporters have a look and say, no, no, the, the mayor wasn't in on it, oh, well, that just shows the press is in on it as well. Now, uh, what what Harris has to say about this is that, in short, he adjusts his he adjusts his belief to accommodate new evidence. Sam's behaviour is therefore consistent with another requirement of rationality. Sam's mistake, if he makes one, is that he updates his beliefs in an inappropriate way. Rather than abandoning his conspiracy theory, he instead alters his beliefs to make that theory fit his observations. So again, so, so, so if you want to claim that conspiracy theorists are dogmatic, then it's like, well... In, in this particular characterization, they're willing to change their beliefs, but p possibly only in a certain direction. Maybe that's an issue, maybe not. We'll see later. But he, see, he then goes on, though, that the, the thing that stuck out to me was that he says, Sam's case, contrived though it is, illustrates epistemic behavior characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. And there's that word again. And I think this was one of the problems I have with the paper, that a bunch, uh, it, it's most of the way through the paper, he will say, 
these things are characteristic of conspiracy theorizing. And aside from referring to those two papers at the start that claim to be talking about characteristics of conspiracy theorizing, which, as we've seen, don't actually hold a lot of water, he never really argues for for, for, for anything, for, for what the actual characteristics of conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theorizing are. And it makes you wonder that maybe he's being vague in a way to kind of avoid the direct comparison with actually how people might be theorizing in other domains. Because the idea of not abandoning your conclusion and changing your auxiliary beliefs to continue to support your research program turns out to be characteristic of another kind of theorizing, scientific theorizing. It's also characteristic of some work in psychology, of psychological theorizing, where you go, look, I'm fairly sure my conclusion's correct. And yeah, the evidence we've got now means I need to manipulate some of the auxiliary hypotheses in order to maintain my core thesis. But this is something which, if it's characteristic of conspiracy theorizing, it's only characteristic of conspiracy theorizing because it's characteristic of theorizing more generally. So mm. I will happily bite the bullet that, yeah, some conspiracy theorists do this because a lot of theorists, conspiracy or otherwise, do this as well. And yeah, so this that, that sort of leads into what comes next. He's, um, he says, The apparent problem with many conspiracy theories is that there can be no evidence against them, and indeed conspiracy theories seem to illicitly derive support from what appear to be conflicting observations. Uh, again, without any, any detail behind to, to, to back that up. But he says, Resilience to falsification is hardly unique to conspiracy theories. And here we get the whole, like, is it Lakatosh or Lakatosh? I've always said Lakatosh. Lakatosh. That'll do. But that being said, there are many philosophers whose names are routinely mangled by other philosophers because people have only ever seen them Well, yes, down. exactly. Uh, but anyway, so, so that's a name you'll remember if we, we've talked about um, Steve Clark, talked about him in the past, and that's where you get your whole um, degenerative, uh, what is it? Degenerative research programs. Research programs. So And, and so the, this is where he starts to bring in that sort of stuff. He says, uh, perhaps there is a related problem with conspiracy theories, or at least a subset of them. Scientific theories are generally not subject to straightforward falsification, but there nonetheless comes a time at which adherence to a scientific theory becomes unreasonable. This occurs when a scientific theory is embedded, oh, here we go, I should have just read through here in my notes, in a research program in a persistent state of degeneration. Perhaps some conspiracy theorists are, as Steve Clark suggests, comparable to scientists who cling too long to degeneration research programs. To assess this criticism, it is necessary to answer two questions. First, what distinguishes a healthy research program from one in a state of degeneration? Second, do conspiracy theories in conjunction with the worldview surrounding them exhibit the features of degenerating research programs? And so he goes through the sorts of stuff that we've seen Steve Clark talk about in the past, and again doesn't find this particular criticism of conspiracy theories um, particularly convincing. Uh, he says... The criticism that conspiracy theorizing is analogous to clinging to a degenerating research program struggles on two scores. First, it's not clear that conspiracy theories, like degenerating research programs, are incapable of predicting novel facts. Second, it's not clear that the ability to predict novel facts is a re reasonable criterion of goodness for a conspiracy theory. If there's a reason to criticize conspiracy theorizing, theorizing on epistemic grounds, it must be located elsewhere. And this is the point where I go, he's making the sound as if he's saying something unique 
in reaction to Clark. But this is not unique. People like Charles Pigton and Lee Basham, and I think even David Cody, have gone, yeah, there's a problem with the Lakatoshian research program analogy with conspiracy theories, and we need to talk about it. So he's not saying anything particularly unique here, but he's also not citing the people who have said the things before him. Mm. But nevertheless, he says if there's a reason to criticise conspiracy theorising on epistemic, uh, epistemic grounds, it must be located elsewhere, and that's what he sets out to find. So section five, this, now we're into that second half of the paper that he talked about before, which is where he starts to set up what he thinks are actually wrong with conspiracy theorising in a section five entitled... What's epistemically wrong with conspiracy theorizing? Yeah, the point the point where he becomes a generalist. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, so section five um, is, is has a bunch of subsections where he lays out his, his problems he thinks there are with conspiracy theorizing, but it starts, Standard criticisms of conspiracy theorizing are misguided. It is perhaps in virtue of the failure of such criticisms that many scholars have taken a relatively charitable attitude towards conspiracy theorizing in recent years. This turn is, I now argue, premature. An implication of my account of conspiracy theories is that belief in a conspiracy theory involves two distinct theoretical stances. First, adherence to a conspiracy theory involves the rejection of some official account of an event. Second, adherence to a conspiracy theory involves acceptance of an alternative explanation. I now argue that both the theoretical stances involved in conspiracy theorizing involve, typically involve epistemic errors. You know, Josh, you could, re you could replace the word... You could replace the word typically there with generally, couldn't you? Generally and typically... Pretty much the same word. They, they do pretty much mean a very similar thing, yeah. Which means you could say the last sentence is, I now argue that both theoretical stances involved in conspiracy theorizing generally involve epistemic errors. Generally involve epistemic errors. Generally. Generalist. Yes. Generalism. Yes, yeah. He's, he's never... Like, right at the start, he said, I, I, I wonder if it's just him the way he looks looks at generalism, he seems to think generalism is all conspiracy theories are wrong or all conspiracy theories are irrational. And he doesn't seem to want to say that, but he does want to say all conspiracy theories have something wrong with them, um, which is what we start yeah. to see now. And a lot of this hinges upon the definition he uses. So a lot of this hinges on the notion that conspiracy theories must be contra-official. Yes. Yeah. So if you buy, if you buy that... And as we discussed earlier, he doesn't really explain why we have to buy that, just that the usage by particularists who don't put the official theory criteria in makes it seem overly broad. If you buy that, then you get some of what he's trying to sell. But if you end up going, yeah, but I haven't bought the official theory thing, then that's not, that, it's a non-starter. Mm. But starter does. With section 5.1, probabilistic modus tollens. Now I have to confess this this section lost me a little bit. It gets it gets a bit technical and I had some trouble following it, but basically it starts it's talking about some of Brian's earliest work when he talked about errant data and how conspiracy theories claim to account for errant data that official theories might might not. So he talks about he talks about Brian's distinction between contradictory data. So he'll say, yeah, some conspiracy theories deal with data that that flat out contradicts the official account, and then you also get conspiracy theories dealing with unaccounted for data. So stuff that the official account doesn't mention, but which the conspiracy theory feels it needs to account for. 
So on the distinction between contradictory and unaccounted for data, um, Harris says, an initial concern for Keeley's distinction of, uh, sorry, discussion of errant data is that it is unclear that data ever contradict official accounts. Official accounts of events like scientific theories assert little about the state of the world in the absence of background hypotheses, thus it's difficult to conceive of data that literally contradict an official account. More generally, it's implausible that conspiracy theorists typically rely on contradictory data, as there may well be no such data even when the official account is false. Thus, to the extent that conspiracy theorists rely on errant data, they must rely on unaccounted for data. Um, what? I that 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 straight away I was like, hang on, I I he's he's lost me there if he's trying to say there's no such thing as contradictory data. I mean, you could say you know, uh, nine eleven, the whole jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams thing. Supposedly we have we have, we have data that that uh, yeah, if we're to believe those arguments, we have data on um, the the uh, temperature at which burning jet fuel would have burned within the Twin Towers and their argument goes. That that flatly contradicts the idea that it was the burning jet fuel and the, the fire that caused the towers to collapse because jet fuel doesn't mount steel beams. Now, obviously, there are reactions to that, but, I mean, that's 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 contradictory data. That's that's just how it goes. So I, I, right from the start, I don't quite see how he's justifying saying that contradictory data doesn't exist. Yeah, there's actually there's a there's a more striking thing here, and I have to now defer to my colleague and one of the authors in the special issue of social epistemology, Nikki Pfeiffer, because also Harris claims that look, modus pollens, mo- yeah, pollens, pollens, modus pollens. That's so, the plant-based yeah, modus one. Pollens. Yeah is valid and so is probabilistic modus ponens. But he came to look, there's no such thing as a probabilistic notion of modus tollens. And as Nicky Pfeiffer points out in footnote 5 of his article in the special issue, which is forthcoming, towards a conceptual framework for conspiracy theory theories, actually there is a probabilistic modus tollens that is valid. So Harris is just wrong there. He's, mm. he's saying, look, there's no, there's no prob- probabilistic version of mo- modus tollens. In fact, there is. Mm. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, modus ponens is the name for the classic argument form that basically goes, if A, you're, it's, a, it's an argument that starts with the premise, if A, then B, then the premise A, and so the conclusion is B. So if A is true, then B is true, A is true, therefore B is true. Modus tollens turns this the other way around, which says... If A is true, then B is true. B is false, therefore A must be false. So rep- ma- making that probabilistic, you then becomes the argument that the modus ponens form becomes: if A is true, then it is probable that B is true. A is true, therefore it is probable that B is true, and that's fine. But what he wants to say isn't valid. So, so as he puts it, probabilistic modus tollens goes: if A is true, then it is improbable that B, it is probable that B, therefore it is not probable that A, which straight away loses me a little bit because he starts by saying A is true rather than then finishes it's A is not probable. And yes, yeah, so, so I mean, I, if, if you're feeling lost, um, I sympathise. He basically seems to be saying that's what conspiracy theorists do when they use errant data to say that the official theory is wrong. They're saying that uh, they're, they're going from the, the the fact that a supposedly improbable thing actually is probable, therefore the initial thing, the, the 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 A in this case, the official theory, must be improbable. 
and he says that's right. I mean, all of this would fall apart if the data was flat out contradictory. Then that would work. Everything would work fine. You'd say if the official theory were true, then this would be the case. This is not the case. Therefore, the official theory can't be true. But sticking the probabilistic stuff in there gets things a bit weird. Now, yeah. So I mean, basically, the pro- I think the problem here is, as you say, the way he states the first premise of the probabilistic mod- modus tollens is if A equal true, then it is improbable that B equal true. Well, actually, it should be if A is probably true, then it is improbable that B is true. So as Nikki points out, like modus ponens, modus tollens has a probabilistic counterpart. The premise probabilities of modus tollens constrain its conclusion probability. So his argument in his paper, and this is, I say, in footnote five, is he actually thinks that Harris is confusing modus tollens in a probabilistic sense with contraposition. In contraposition, he'd be correct. But with respect to modus tollens, there is in fact a valid form of that in a in a probabilistic logical calculus. So yeah, I mean, I was I was a bit lost. I thought, okay, well, hang on, I might be on steadier ground here because then he gives an example of what he's talking about. But his example is that that, that idea that um, that we may recall from talk of of September eleven and building building number seven. Uh, there was the claim that the BBC reported that building seven had fallen before building seven actually fell. I'm pretty sure that is true, isn't it? But yeah, they did. They they, as far as the BBC is concerned, so their official statement is they just they they got the building numbers wrong when they were reporting, and so it's just a coincidence that they reported the falling of Building Seven before Building Seven ever did fall. But they did they did actually announce it. Mm. They just their claim is they 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 were confused in the moment. But at any rate, he so so he gives this example and then says, gives sort of re- relating that to this form of argument. He says, given that the official account of the September 11 attacks is true, it is highly improbable that the mistaken report would occur. Uh, and that's his example of a thing. But then they say that the mistaken report did occur. Therefore, the official account must not be true. But like straight away, that example is wrong. You're saying if if the official account were true, it would be highly improbable for these mistaken reports to to occur. Well, that's that's no, there's nothing improbable about that at all, as we've talked about this numerous times. In, in chaotic situations like this, in the early minutes and hours when stuff's still happening and nobody quite knows what's going on, it's entirely probable for re- mistaken reports to go out. That's yeah, the thing that we see happen the all the damn time. Systemic issues we get with mass shooting events is that because witnesses describe single shooters in different ways, law enforcement and the media will put out bulletins going, look, there may be one or more people involved in this event, and then 24 hours later, a a police psychologist will go, well, actually, it's, it's the same person that's been described in slightly different ways. So actually, there's only one shooter there, but people will point to the initial reports that make it look as if there's another person involved go, look, there's something weird going on here. They've made one of the culprits disappear. Mm. So, yeah, I don't fully get the point, but what I do get does not make sense to me anyway. But So maybe we should then just move along to section 5.2, the risks and rewards of conspiracy theorizing. 
So in this section he says, if the arguments developed in the previous section is correct, then conspiracy theorizing is often irrational insofar as it involves a misuse of errant data. But belief in, conspiracy in a conspiracy theory does not consist merely in the rejection of the official account. Conspiracy theories also assert the truth of some alternative explanation of the target event. I now argue that the second theoretical stance is likewise fraught. So he, he does say... So the conspiracy theorists can be closed-minded and they can exhibit confirmation bias, but so can everyone else. Those sorts of problems are not in any way specific to conspiracy theories. But he does say, although vulnerability to confirmation bias and intellectual closed-mindedness are apparently not sufficient to ground epistemic criticisms of conspiracy theorists that do not apply equally to non-conspiracy theorists, such traits may figure into a more nuanced criticism that applies primarily to conspiracy theorists. The reason for this disparity, in my view, is precisely the fact that conspiracy theorizing typically, there's that word again, involves a greater degree of intellectual activity than that involved in acceptance of an official account. Conspiracy theorists put considerable effort into developing and motivating their theories while downplaying the possibility that their conclusions are due in large part to the exhibition of intellectual vice and reliance on unreliable sources of information. In short, the fact that conspiracy theorists' enthusiasm for the pursuit of truth is not matched by a correspondingly heightened sensitivity to their own cognitive biases and potential for error exposes conspiracy theorists to unique epistemic criticism. And yet again, that's, he, he's saying conspiracy theories or conspiracy theorists are like this, but not backing that, that up with anything. characteristic of mm. them. Yeah, once again, we're, we've been general claims about the typical action of conspiracy theorists are being made, and really, as you pointed out earlier, the only supporting evidence for this is the Goetzel piece and the Wood and Douglas piece, both of which are pieces which have been subject to sustained criticism. Mm. And neither of which really apply to what he's talking about in that case. No. Mm. And so then finally we get section 5.3, his last, last um, count against conspiracy theorizing. He says, There's a final criticism of conspiracy theorizing worth making here. As I have emphasized, the behavior constitutive of conspiracy theorizing does not simply consist in rejection of the official account. It also involves acceptance of some alternative account. It is difficult to understand, however, how the conspiracy theorist might motivate this latter theoretical stance. So basically he's... And I, I think of, all, of the three points he makes, this one seems to be the most fear, that he says, he's basically saying conspiracy theorists are sceptical of the official account and, and sceptical of mainstream information sources, but they tend not to have an equivalent level of scepticism for alternative accounts and, and alternative information sources. He says, um, it is often not the conspiracy theorist's scepticism that appears epistemically objectionable. Rather, what is objectionable about conspiracy theories theorizing is that such scepticism is often attended by, and even motivated in part by, a dogmatic acceptance of certain sources of information as reliable. Now, again, he's, again, he's, characterize, you know, he's making these characterizations of conspiracy theorists as though this is something... It's it's just understood that this is something typical uh, of conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theorizing. I mean, we we know, we know that this, you know we have seen this in the past. We have seen that conspiracy that 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 some conspiracy theorists uh, and we all you know that just like the COVID stuff most recently, people re will reject anything the mainstream media says, anything the so-called experts say, but they'll believe randoms on Facebook and YouTube. But th that's not. You, st you still haven't still haven't established that this is a thing that's characteristic of conspiracy theorizing in and of itself. Yeah, we've just pointed out that there are 
There are some conspiracy theorists who produce conspiracy theories of this kind, but whether it's characteristic of conspiracy theories in a general sense, not clear. Not yeah. clear at all. And another point that I also thought was actually quite quite interesting, one that I haven't seen brought up before, is that there's also usually a variety of alternatives to the official theory that could account for the event or events in question and could account for any errant data. So he says, thus, even if one grants that the conspiracy theorist is rational to reject the official account, there often remains no motivation for the conspiracy theorist to adopt the second theoretical stance constitutive of conspiracy theorizing, because any number of conspiratorial explanations can be constructed, all of which account for the data equally well. The conspiracy theorist often lacks sufficient warrant for belief in any particular conspiratorial explanation. Which I thought was an interesting point. I mean, it's an interesting point, but because it relies vague, entirely on that definition yeah. that it's opposed to the official theory. Yeah. And the thing is, if you've got proof positive that the official theory is, say, inconsistent with the available evidence, you actually might have sufficient evidence to go, look, there is really only one more likely explanatory position we can have here. So, sure. If you're talking about conspiracy theories in the abstract, then when you reject the official theory and you start going for conspiratorial explanations for events, then, yeah, there's going to be a lot of explanations you can put forward which are compatible with a range of evidence. But conspiracy theorists typically, I'm going to use this characteristic term now, when they're putting forward their conspiracy theories, look, we are relying on evidential points 1, 2, 3, A, B, and C, and those points both show the official theory, doesn't look like it's correct, and that there's a particular conspiracy theory which seems more likely given the evidence. So he only gets to this conclusion by being vague. Mm, yes, exactly. And then that brings us to section 6, concluding remarks. Actually, I, I was I was giving him crap at the start for calling his introduction introduction, but calling his conclusion concluding remarks is actually a slight break from the norm. So points there. Uh, the concluding remarks section is very short. It reads in full, Conspiracy theorists have often been subjected to a rather dismissive attitude on the part of academics and those in the public realm. This attitude might be justified if conspiracy theorists were generally delusional or otherwise guilty of extraordinary epistemic fault. We've seen that the errors typically made by conspiracy theorists are subtler than one might expect. But contra recent trends toward a more charitable attitude towards conspiracy theorizing, there are epistemic errors heavily implicated in conspiracy theorizing. I do not mean to suggest that all conspiracy theorists commit the sort of errors described in the preceding sections. However, there are epistemic grounds on which to criticise those that do. Now, this conclusion, I think, slides from the stronger claims in the paper. So, in the paper, he's going typically, characteristically, as we joked, generally. But he concludes with, oh, we know, if you commit the errors I've described, then your belief is irrational. And that seems to be a weaker claim than he's committed to in the paper itself. Mm. Yeah, yes, he's gone from saying conspiracy theorists typically do this and that's bad to simply conspiracy theorists who do these things are bad without without committing to any idea of how, pop, uh, how, how common those things might be. Yes, how characteristic or typical these views mm. might be. So he's trying to, in the conclusion, avoid being labelled as a generalist. Like, oh, only it's only a problem if you commit these errors. That's all I'm saying. 
But in the body of the paper, he's going, typically, conspiracy theorists commit these mm. errors, and that's ground for characteristically characterizing them as characteristically irrational characteristic conspiracy theories characters. Mm. So then I thought that this was an interesting paper. Um, I enjoyed reading through it, but yeah, I thought, I mean, it's basically rests entirely on a definition of conspiracy theory that he doesn't really argue for particularly in any, any particular detail. And it really rests on a characterization of conspiracy theorists that he doesn't really argue for at all. It's all just claims that the, this, this stuff is characteristic of conspiracy theories, but doesn't back it up at all. And it is interesting that there are a lot of fictional conspiracy theories used to motivate the analysis rather than actual examples of conspiracy theories. So, for example, the Sam Mir thing. Okay, so why not just use an actual example? Why mm. why make one up? Because he does have to do the, you know, I realise this isn't a real example, but I think it's characteristic. Okay, so that was the criticism everyone had about Kasim's piece, about his fictional Oliver conspiracy theorist, where Kasim invents a conspiracy theorist, ladens that conspiracy theorist with epistemic vices. Go, well, look, conspiracy theorists are just like my made-up example. Okay, so... Mm. Are they though? Yes. Are they? I mean, at the end of the day, especially especially if you take him at his word, just in that conclu- concluding remarks section, it really seems to be another. Uh, it's either a bit of a throwback, really, just to papers that we haven't seen many of in more recent times, where it's people trying to trying to identify those conspiracy theories that we can that we are justified in in rejecting without investigation the the, the the good old the good old the good old eyebrow waggling those ones you know the conspiracies we mean those ones not the sensible yeah. ones sure conspiracies really exist but but when we talk about conspiracy theories that are that are irrational you know what we mean you know the ones it's these ones and yeah he seems to be at, at the end at least he seems to be saying you know that this is this is his attempt at um at, at marking out those ones, the ones that, that um, uh, make these epistemic errors, but throughout the rest of the paper, he doesn't really seem to be saying that. And so, you know, at, at best, I think, in the most generous reading of it, it still seems to be that sort of thing that we've seen um, just never work out in the past. Yep. Hmm. So there we go. Yeah, so, so uh, I was certainly... It was it was a bit of a breath of fresh air, to be honest, to see someone arguing against the, the, a lot of the stuff, despite spending half the paper arguing or re- rehashing arguments we've already seen for the particularist position. So yeah, I mean, I didn't agree with most of it, but I did enjoy reading it. Well, I'll have a I'll have an additional special tidbit to talk about this paper in the bonus episode. So I'll leave my residual commentary, as I like to call it. For mm-hmm. the patrons, they'll get to hear something maybe a little bit juicy mm. about the paper. But that's not all, because we've got some news to talk about. And because it's our notes from the paper when we were going to record it last week, it's all news that's about a week out of date. But that's okay. We'll talk about it anyway. There's some interesting stuff there. There's some some a podcast recommendation. There's some Trumpy stuff. There's a bit of Satanism. Gotta gotta love a bit of Satanism. And we have to talk about the wackiness that went down in Germany a week or so ago. We do, we do. And due to VPN-related issues, I have really not seen anything outside the Great Firewall for about a week. So some of this actually might be information... Oh, really? Oh. Mm. So you're saying Hungary doesn't exist anymore? Oh, I hadn't hadn't heard that. Mm. 
Well, we'll just have to see. Uh, and you will see if you're a patron, because you'll get the bonus episode, as all patrons do. If you want to be a patron, you can just go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and sign yourself up. And if you don't want to be a patron, then that's fine too. Uh, just listen to these episodes, because that's what podcasts are for. So I believe we're done for uh, another episode. So I think, I think we've got one more in us for the year which I think, I think will have to be the traditional year-in-review type episode, so we should be able it to get will. that recorded well. next week. So we'll see you next week for what will almost certainly be our last podcast of the year, and then, and then who knows what 2023 will bring. Could be literally anything. Mm, there could be a distinctive new sound to the podcast in 2023. It's a possibility. Mm, I'll say no yeah, more. Distinctive new sound. Mm. I'll say no more, except, of course, for goodbye. Lassitude. Lassitude. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Dentist. Our show's consp- sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember... Keep watching the skis.